Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War, episode 12. Last time we untangled the complex set of events in early 1950, as the American response to increased Sino-Soviet cooperation was to develop new policy reports on how to abandon Taiwan and bring Mao Zedong over to the side of Washington, with a minimum of fuss. At the same time, we also saw how Dean Acheson's speech to the National Press Club on the 12th of January 1950 remains somewhat contentious to this day, largely due to the fact that, supposedly speaking off the cuff, the Secretary of State managed to say several things at once and have several more things attributed to him. 
the inferred deal still stood. If Mao would refrain from signing a Soviet alliance, Washington would leave Taiwan to its fate, and Mao would be free to conclude his civil war and to count America as a firm friend. The genuine fear that Mao would come to an agreement with the Soviets had been growing ever since the Chinese leader had abruptly appeared in Moscow. And in this episode, we'll examine how that feared alliance finally came to pass. In the background were other pieces which Stalin continued to move across the board. His abandonment of the United Nations and his encouragement of Kim Il-sung were two simultaneous policies aimed at driving a wedge between the Chinese and the West through a war on the Korean Peninsula. Such a drastic and risky strategy was the best way, Stalin believed, to force a friendless China into a position of dependence upon the Soviet Union, thereby granting Moscow greater powers. As some added bonuses, the conflict would also drain Western resources, distract the Americans from events going on in Europe, and could even result in the establishment of a communist Korea if things went a certain way. All the while, the aim of alienating China from the West remained paramount, and in this episode, we'll see how Stalin sought to make this happen. So let's begin, as I take you to mid-January 1950. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by 1956. 1956 is the latest series released by yours truly, which covers the events of, believe it or not, the year 1956. 1956 was a very eventful year in the 20th century, which is why the full title of the series is called 1956, The Eventful Year. It is a Patreon-exclusive series, which you can access in full by paying $5 a month to When Diplomacy Fails as Patreon, which you can find, of course, by clicking in the link of this episode or just searching When Diplomacy Fails Patreon on Google or what have you. However, we have done things a little bit differently this time around. We've actually released the first few episodes of 1956 into its own kind of podcast feed. So you can literally search 1956, the eventful year, in any of your podcatchers, so iTunes, Podcast Addict, etc., and find the first two episodes already there for your listening pleasure. I had a really good time researching and discovering information about 1956 that I really did not know. I got really deep into the Suez Crisis. I looked at how the de-Stalinization speech and life after Stalin Soviet Union led to revolts in Hungary and Poland. It's a really interesting series that I think you guys will really appreciate and really enjoy. If you enjoy the formula of this podcast, if you're just new to this podcast and the Korean War is your first real sample of what we're all about here at When Diplomacy Fails, then 1956 will be a brilliant kind of transition for you, especially because in many ways 1956, the eventful year, is the sequel to the Korean War. So if you're interested, make sure to click on the link for 1956 in the show notes of this episode, or of course, just search for 1956 in your your favorite podcatcher. Other than that, I really hope you enjoy it, guys, and make sure, as always, to let me know what you think. So the song of the week this week is Strut Miss Lizzie by Mary Stafford. Mary Stafford is quite interesting because she was the first African-American woman to be signed by Columbian Records. This song came out in 1921, and I hope... You enjoy it, guys. We'll be back afterwards with episode 12 of The Korean War.
The speech of Secretary of State Dean Acheson on the 12th of January 1950 weighed heavily on Mao Zedong's mind. Joseph Stalin would make sure of that. It certainly drew the Chinese leader's attention, since Acheson had intimated the intention of Washington was to pull back from Taiwan and to refrain from interfering in China's civil war if, and it was a big if, Mao Zedong refrained from making any kind of alliance with Moscow. As we know, of course, Mao had always wanted it both ways. He had wanted to end the civil war in China conclusively and to secure Chinese security by forging agreements with both the East and the West, thereby reducing the dependence of the People's Republic of China on the Soviet Union. On the other hand, of course, Stalin was completely opposed to any such plan that Mao had in mind, and he regarded Mao getting the best of both worlds as his worst nightmare come true. To ensure that Mao Zedong became a Soviet vassal in many respects, Stalin had to create the circumstances that would guarantee the alienation of the PRC from any Western friends, and he also had to engineer a crisis which would prevent Mao from finishing the troubling civil war. War in Korea represented the best opportunity to kill both of these birds with the same stone, but although we have seen Stalin set up much of this plan already, and the Soviet walkout from the United Nations Security Council in particular, much still had to be done. Dean Acheson's speech thus represented a grave threat to Stalin's plan, and for Mao Zedong it could represent his own bird-killing stone. If Dean Acheson was genuine, then the PRC could withdraw from Moscow, sign a deal with Washington, and be free to seize Taiwan, thus ending Chinese isolation and finishing the civil war. The possibility that Mao may well do this had compelled Stalin to act in the past, and Acheson's speech here was no different. Much like he had done before, Stalin sought to paint the 12th of January speech in the most negative terms possible. In the event, by the time Stalin did approach Mao on the issue of the speech on the 17th of January, Mao already saw it coming. For his part, Mao had remained silent on the speech in his cable's home for the last five days. His silence had less to do with the offer put forward by Acheson, where Taiwan would essentially be swapped for good relations with the United States, and more to do with the awkward position some of Acheson's other remarks placed him in. If you'll recall, in addition to stating American defence interests, Acheson had also been cuttingly honest about Washington's perceptions of what the Soviet Union was exactly up to in Asia. Acheson's note that Moscow was expanding its imperialist ambitions under the Soviet communist Aegis was damaging enough, but the very accurate truth that Moscow was simultaneously reviving the same czarist expansionism into Asia that Nicholas II had attempted 50 years before was even more inflammatory. Soviet occupation of Manchuria, Inner and Outer Mongolia, and the Xinjiang province in the northwest of China were sore spots for Mao, and they were unacceptable to him as a Chinese nationalist. Yet, although they could be negotiated when the time came, Acheson's criticisms of the Soviet position couldn't be allowed to just hang in the air unanswered. Yet again, leaving them unanswered was exactly what Mao intended to do, because if he responded to the Soviet occupations, he would certainly irritate Stalin, but he couldn't very well proclaim his acceptance of the situation, since it would damage his nationalist reputation at home. Mao's solution to Acheson's speech, in addition to certainly pondering that offer of Taiwan, was to remain totally silent on Acheson's points. To Stalin, of course, Mao's silence was unacceptable, and his general irritation at the American expose would have to be contained. It was imperative that Stalin was not seen as the nationalist imperialist, which he certainly was, and that he was instead seen as the international communist spreading revolution and the democratic people's liberty 
to these countries for their own good. Failing that, the long resorted to excuse that Stalin was simply protecting or securing these lands from foreign intrigue was also used, as all the while Stalin ensured that his forces stirred up ethnic tensions against Beijing and established fortified bases in the regions. However genuinely convincing Stalin's claims were, there was always need for some kind of claim to plug the gap and provide an explanation, however believable or unbelievable, for what was going on. In this case, Stalin knew that his explanations would hold more water if Mao himself publicly supported them, and thus Stalin set to work attempting to wrest a response from the Chinese leader. He sent Molotov to meet with Mao, and after Molotov decried Acheson's speech as a clear slander against the Soviet Union, the veteran Soviet foreign minister claimed that Moscow would react soon with a declaration against Acheson's speech. First, though, Molotov explained to Mao, We would prefer for the Chinese government to be the first to make a statement on this matter, and afterwards the USSR Ministry of Foreign Affairs would make an appropriate statement. So Mao was trapped and he knew it. Now he was forced to make an announcement which would damn him at home or in Moscow. So Mao tried to pawn off his response to an underling, which Molotov refused to allow. Then, Mao managed to gain approval for Zhou Enlai, then on the way to Moscow from Beijing, to make an announcement on the subject. He was so desperate for a result that Molotov even had the trains stop over so that Mao and Zhou could speak on the telephone about the matter. Yet Mao did manage to call Molotov's bluff, and he eventually instructed Zhou to issue the response through the New China News Agency, where it could be labelled as independent of the government's opinion, even while, of course, no such independent media organisation now existed in the Chinese government of the People's Republic. In an effort to repair some of the damage, Mao granted Molotov a way back in by asking him whether he believed Acheson's speech was all a mere smokescreen for an American attempt to occupy Taiwan, at which point Molotov, who was well versed in this game of course, jumped at the chance to agree and save some face. Molotov added that since America's policy vis-a-vis China had gone up in smoke, it was impossible to disagree that they, the Americans, are using the dissemination of slander as a kind of smokescreen to carry out their plans of occupation. Not only was such a dishonest policy typical of the Americans, but Molotov also noted that Acheson's fabrications represented an insult to China, as he put it. Perhaps now sensing that a chance to get some payback of his own had represented itself, Mao now sought to take advantage of the fact that Molotov may not have been as clued in as Stalin was. In a candid conversation with the Soviet foreign affairs veteran on the 19th of January 1950, Mao revealed that During the last few days, the Americans have mobilized their networks and are testing the ground for negotiations with the People's Republic of China. Mao alluded to the fact here that Philip Jessup, an American ambassador who was travelling at this point throughout Asia on a fact-finding mission, had been put in contact with the Chinese in Hong Kong. Yet, Mao assured the now troubled Soviet foreign minister that we are paying no attention to this American ground testing. Adding to this news, which Molotov seemed unaware of, Mao added in the fact that the Chinese were everywhere closing down the foreign consulates and taking back their lands, in the process forcing Americans, British, French and others out of the People's Republic of China. This was a good thing for Sino-Soviet relations because it would really annoy those other foreign delegates. Mao said this, but he added in the caveat that 
We need to win time to put the country in order, which is why we are trying to postpone the hour of recognition by the USA. The later the Americans receive legal rights in China, the better it is. Through such means, Mao informed Stalin's number two that he intended to normalise relations with the West in due time, but not yet. This act had the dual benefit of shocking Molotov, who plainly hadn't been as well informed as he perhaps should have been, but it also served to light a fire under Stalin, even though Stalin had known since the 19th of December that Mao intended to formally establish relations with the West in due course. This repeat of Mao's intention, coming only a few days after Acheson's speech, sent a clear message. It was time to pay the Chinese some proper attention. Rather than actually meet with the Chinese, though, Stalin instead placed stumbling blocks in Mao's way, further exacerbating the sense that the Soviets did not have the best interests of the People's Republic of China at heart. First, Stalin urged Mao to seize the city of Hong Kong. Then, he urged Mao to recognise the communist regime in Indochina under Ho Chi Minh. The first proposal, that of seizing Hong Kong from the British, Mao saw for the ridiculous risk that it was. A seizure of Britain's most valued Asian possession would only send Britain, America and the rest of the Western powers away from the Chinese. Mao didn't want to isolate himself, and whether he put Stan's recommendation down to naive advice or disingenuous, insidious advice is not quite known. The Hong Kong issue put aside, Mao did move to recognise Indochina. He recognised Ho Chi Minh's communist government as a new people's republic, and he did so a whole fortnight before the Soviet Union did. Stalin's fleeting effort to drive a wedge between China and the West in Hong Kong had taken a blow, but the Korean ace was still up his sleeve. It was now time to reintroduce Kim Il-sung to Mao Zedong. While Mao Zedong had been in the dark in early January 1950, Stalin had been working to set his plan into motion in Korea. First, the best soldiers that Korea had to offer would be placed in the dictator's hands in Pyongyang, and these were currently serving in the Chinese People's Liberation Army. Under some prodding from Stalin, Kim Il-sung requested these soldiers back from Mao in the second week of January, and thousands of enthusiastic veterans began to return to their Korean home. On the 17th of January 1950, several high-ranking Soviet and Chinese officials travelled to North Korea to meet with Kim Il-sung in Pyongyang for a friendly lunch. The Chinese Civil War, Comrade Stalin's great successes and the liberation of Korea from the capitalist imperialists were the talking points of the day. Remarking that Stalin only accepted a war in Korea if the South attacked first, Kim Il-sung lamented with some sincerity that Since Ri Sing-man is not instigating an attack, it means that the liberation of the people of the southern part of the country and the unification of the country are being drawn out. Kim thus declared his intention to travel to Moscow and meet with Stalin for the purpose of wresting permission from him to attack first. Furthermore, Kim Il-sung added he would visit first Stalin and then Comrade Mao, whom he believed was his friend and will always help Korea. Two days later, Mao's opportunity to help Korea came when the new North Korean ambassador in Beijing requested that Mao send back the remaining North Korean natives to serve in the National Army, resulting in the final exodus of North Korean veterans and their total return home, which had begun a few weeks before. All told, from this diplomatic transfer, which Mao was in no position to refuse, Kim Il-sung saw his army's ranks swell mightily, to the point that he soon possessed over 50,000 battle-hardened men 
ready to invade Syngmanri's beleaguered regime. Stalin's agreement and prodding of Kim to suck back his troops into North Korea led, as Stalin anticipated it would, to a newfound sense of tension in Mao's camp. For the first time, it now seemed possible that Kim's invasion of South Korea could take place before the destruction of the Republican regime on Taiwan could be completed. For some time, Stalin had rode back on his promise to provide the necessary troops for Mao for the invasion of Taiwan, yet now that Mao was bound to be somewhat wound up about this issue, Stalin would pose as the arsenal of the Chinese communists once more. This didn't mean that Mao Zedong was in control of the situation. On the contrary, it meant that Stalin could drip-feed Mao the military assistance that he needed, as the Soviet leader saw fit, and that Mao would be prevented from going elsewhere for aid. In addition, it signalled that Stalin now had complete control over which conflict would come first. Would it be the invasion of South Korea by the North, or the final invasion of Taiwan by the Chinese communists? In both cases, Stalin was now in the position to have the final say, and this quest for absolute power over his allies was thus complete. Stalin obviously wanted to prevent at all costs the conquest of Taiwan for as long as possible, since this would provide him with leverage over Mao for as long as he needed it. Because Mao was in no position to launch the invasion by himself, he lacked the key landing craft and aeroplanes above all, he became far more indebted to Stalin than he ever intended to be, and Stalin could now put the invasion of Taiwan on hold in private, while in public he would be doing all he could to bring Mao's ambitions to fruition, so he would say. Although, in my view, Stalin is one of the most vile characters to ever grace the 20th century, there is no denying that he knew how to use leverage to his advantage. Soviet foreign policy was here based upon the correct assumption that if a war in Korea came after Taiwan had been liberated by Mao, then Mao would have felt far less threat from the American position, and that he may even have cooperated with the Americans, to a limited extent, on the issue. Yet, so long as Taiwan remained an open wound in Mao's mind, any American activity in and around the region threatened to empower the Republicans and endanger the People's Republic, and Mao couldn't allow that. His caution proved justified, as we'll see the American response later in 1950 was to send a fleet between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland, confirming Mao's worst fears and solidifying his intentions to use the Korean theatre as a place to contain the Western threat to his regime. Certainly, while this incident proceeded apace, Stalin would have looked on gleefully, confident that the Americans and Chinese had blundered into one another and Mao's nightmare had been realised while Stalin's nightmare had been studiously avoided. Rowing back the story a bit though, and before we get too far ahead of ourselves, when Mao and Stalin did meet regarding Korea, Mao's response that, The Americans might not come in because this is Korea's internal affair, but the Korean comrades need to take the possibility of American intervention into account. This did not mean that Mao was giving the green light for the Korean War, as is sometimes supposed. The historical obsession with green lights being given during the Korean War really needs to stop, since there were no green lights. There were, under Stalin's distinct brand of nationalist, imperialist communism, only some very, very red lights. Mao was at least now accompanied by Zhou Enlai, who arrived in Moscow on the 21st of January 1950, just as the final North Korean soldiers were returning home from the Chinese armies. Enlai and Mao both recognised that the task ahead of them was a great one, especially considering the tacit acceptance both men were forced to make of Stalin's newfound leverage over them. 
It was no accident, Mao was coming to believe, that Stalin now possessed a North Korean wildcard which could menacingly threaten to ignite a war before Mao had completed his own revolution at home. As Mao would later recall, he believed at the time that Kim Il-sung would attack the South no matter what happened and he thus began his own personal quest to ensure that this conflict didn't break out, at least not until Taiwan had been neutralised. Yet because Stalin possessed the key ingredients for such an invasion, the weaponry, the planes, the equipment, the landing craft, etc., Mao would not be able to move unless Stalin essentially said so. It was with these concerns in mind that the negotiations for the Sino-Soviet Treaty, which Washington so feared, began in Moscow properly after nearly a whole month of waiting on the 22nd of January 1950. By this point, if it wasn't clear by now, Mao's once naive belief that he and Stalin would become ideologically bound by common interests had faded from view. The race was on instead to gain as much as possible at the bargaining table and give as little as possible in return. The nominal communist allies sat down to treat face to face at last. It had been a rough set of weeks for Mao Zedong, but this stretch of time had been remarkably productive and illuminating for Joseph Stalin. The month before, Stalin wasn't certain how to guarantee Soviet interests in China, short of manoeuvring Mao somehow into conflict with the West. Yet, thanks to a sneaky series of background details, boycotting the United Nations and shifting North Korean soldiers home as the standouts, Stalin understood his aims clearly by the time he sat down with Mao now. What is remarkable about the meeting between the two wasn't the intensive and exhaustive horse trading which endured up to the 11th hour, it wasn't the symbolic threat that the treaty posed to the West when it was eventually agreed, either. Instead, it was the fact that both Mao Zedong and Joseph Stalin wanted completely opposite things from one another, and neither had the best interests of the other at heart. Stalin wanted to force China into a costly Korean War, Mao wanted to abandon the Soviets, and he would have if he could, and especially if he could get a better deal from Washington. Yet somehow, in spite of the considerable differences and difficulties between the two figures, an agreement was established. For the sake of convenience, it is useful to divide the negotiations between Mao and Stalin into two distinct phases. Both phases were negotiated over the 22nd to 24th of January, and what followed after this point were merely last-minute negotiations on minutiae, and the sources for these talks are provided above all by Mao Zedong's translator. In Stalin's mind, there were two major issues to address. The first were the old treaties between the Republic of China and the USSR, in other words, the terms laid down in the 1945 treaty. The second were the deliberations over the status of the disputed territories, Manchuria, Mongolia, Xinjiang, and so on. Mao replied to Stalin's request for his opinion by laying out two major aims. Mao said to Stalin that he wanted to cement genuine and lasting commitments to friendship between the Chinese and Soviet peoples, in contrast to the empty words of the 1945 treaty, and he said that he wanted to formulate agreements which would guard against Japanese aggression in the future. The issue of Japanese aggression could be conveniently linked to American aggression in support of its Japanese ally, and it was through this window of Japanese aggression, a profoundly unlikely act in the 20th century considering what Japan had just gone through, that Mao sought to gain Soviet guarantees of assistance, which Stalin attempted to resist. Frequent references to Japan and any other state, as they put it in the treaty, 
was implied to mean America, and the interesting differences between Stalin and Mao is that Stalin simply wished Mao to explicitly state America as his main enemy without forcing the Soviet Union to adhere to some kind of mutual defence pact. Mao, on the other hand, wanted a defence pact with Stalin, but not to name America as the enemy of the PRC. It was far more palatable and convenient to name Japan, the traditional enemy of Chinese and Russian interests, as the foe instead. Another interesting fact about the negotiations on the 1945 treaty was how much Mao's position had changed. Already, Mao was beginning to show visible signs to Stalin that he was aware, at least in some level, of his Korean plan. Whereas before, Mao had demanded the urgent return of Port Arthur and Darien, those two ports in Manchuria, now Mao said that he wanted Soviet troops to stay. How do we explain this change of mind in Mao Zedong's case? Did he not want Manchuria back in security Chinese hands? Of course, Mao did want this, but he also wanted to find a way to involve Soviet soldiers in the war in Korea should it break out. The best way to involve the Soviet Union in the war that Stalin seemed to be planning with Kim Il-sung was to keep the Soviet soldiers behind, in the hope that they would be pressured into getting involved by the conflict raging not too far from their bases and, if it spilled over, the Korean border into the Manchurian region. As Mao's position changed, so too did Stalin's, where before he had argued to keep Soviet soldiers in Manchuria, now he wanted to evacuate them in case, as Mao had hoped, the Korean War spilled into Manchuria and drew his soldiers in. Incredibly then, guys, thanks to the looming Korean issue, both Stalin and Mao now appeared to argue for the polar opposite demands that they had once put forward. The most important issue for Mao now remained to clarify Soviet intervention in the event of a war between China and the United States. In the 1945 treaty, Stalin would be forced to intervene in China at a moment's notice and whenever possible. Thus the language of Article 3 in the 1945 treaty, which stipulated Soviet intervention in Chinese conflicts, read the following way. In the event of one of the high contracting parties becoming involved in hostilities with Japan in consequence of an attack by the latter against the said contracting party, the other high contracting party shall at once give to the contracting party so involved in hostilities all the military and other support and assistance with the means in its power. Note the language that we used in 1945 here, guys. The commitment by one side to intervene on behalf of the other if one got involved in hostilities. The 1945 treaty was plainly aimed at Japan above all, since this was before the Cold War truly froze Soviet-American relations. As far as conflicts that did not involve the Japanese went, the Soviet Union pointedly refused to intervene on behalf of the Republic of China once it did become involved in hostilities the Chinese Civil War, above all. But such concerns were overcome by the pledge by Stalin that he had made to Chiang Kai-shek to not support the communists in the Civil War, which, yeah, he did anyway. Fast forward to early 1950, though, where Stalin under no circumstances wished to intervene to help China, and the change was as remarkable as it was cynical. In the new 1950 Treaties Article on Mutual Assistance, this time the stipulations read... In the event of one of the contracting parties being attacked by Japan or any other state allied with her and thus being involved in a state of war, the other contracting party shall immediately render military and other assistance by all means at her disposal. Note the critical caveat here. 
in a state of war. Think back now to what the Korean War was known for, and you'll remember it wasn't known for a full-blown war between America and China. It was known instead as a limited war, a police action, where both powers attacked each other in an undeclared conflict. China used its volunteer army, and America operated through the auspices of the United Nations. Stalin's diplomatic foresight here was astonishing, and it enabled the Soviet Union to stand innocently by later on, as the war its leader had effectively set in motion achieved the exact objectives it had desired. If you remember anything from the 1950 treaty then, guys, remember that this was the moment that Mao Zedong was diplomatically outmaneuvered like never before. While other agreements on the Manchurian railways, extraterritoriality and a strange request from Stalin to prevent any Chinese citizens from returning to the places in Mongolia and Xinjiang once they had left, this stipulation in the treaty of 1950 was by far the most significant element to us. In terms of the Korean War, this concession on Mao's part represented one of Stalin's greatest and most understated diplomatic triumphs. Yet in the early morning of the 14th of February 1950, following a fortnight of exhaustive back and forth over tiny existential details, Mao attempted to get one up on Stalin to the latter's intense fury. Do you remember we just mentioned the issues of extraterritoriality and de facto colonisation underway in Xinjiang? Well, these and a few other details, including one article which did mention the Americans by name as the enemy of China if Sino-Soviet interests were attacked along the Changchung Railway, were lumped into what was called the Additional Agreement. The Additional Agreement was important to Stalin mostly because it named America as the enemy, and even though it was in the specific case of the Changchung Railway, over which Beijing and Moscow shared ownership, the symbolism of such an act was important to the Soviet leader. Yet, it was this additional agreement which, on the morning of the 14th of February, Mao decided to unceremoniously delete from all further proceedings. No further power would be aware of the fact that America had once been listed as an enemy, or that the Soviet Union had demanded such extensive imperialist rights over former Chinese territory. Coming so late in the game, this breach of diplomatic protocol and trust couldn't be stopped by Stalin, and as was always the case whenever he was outmaneuvered, the Soviet leader was absolutely furious. At the celebration dinner in the evening of the 14th of January, intended to mark the new departure in relations between the two sides, Stalin spent most of his after-dinner speech lamenting on Mao's decision and wiggling his finger at the Chinese leader, criticising his unfaithful move. Venting his anger further, Stalin intimated that Mao Zedong had better watch himself and should be careful not to mirror Tito's behaviour by pandering to the West. But Mao let this finger-wiggling roll off him. He had no intention of doing that. He accepted that the treaty had not been all that he wanted, but he had to take it upon himself to save some face at Stalin's expense in the final hour. Stalin didn't like it, but as we saw, the Soviet leader had still gained a great deal. Originally being put forward as the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Alliance, before Zhou Enlai added in the additional words, and mutual assistance, this agreement had been the result of nearly a year of manoeuvre, bluff and straight-up dishonesty. Whatever his reservations or the treaty's shortcomings, Mao could not deny that the treaty caused a storm in the West. For 30 years, this treaty declared, the PRC and the USSR were now entwined in a mutually beneficial alliance pact, the Sino-Soviet communist bloc had been built, and America's quest to drive a wedge between Beijing and Moscow had evidently failed. 
These were all small mercies in Mao's mind, however, considering what the Chinese leader knew that he must do next. Even after they had laid their friendship down before the world, both Mao and Stalin now began to assemble their forces to employ preemptively against their sphere of influence. If it wasn't clear before, it was crystallised in their so-called Treaty of Friendship. Now, more than ever, the race was on. Would it be Taiwan, or would it be Korea that was attacked first? Next time, we'll resume our examination of this incredible story, as we look at the bombshell which the Sino-Soviet Treaty represented to Washington. How would Dean Acheson respond, now that his policy line of the last few years had effectively gone up in smoke? We'll find out, and I hope you'll join me to find out in the next episode. But until then, guys, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 12 of The Korean War. Thanks for listening, my lovely history friends and patrons, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.